I picked up on a couple of words out of this passage, and I thought, I know somewhere else we need to spend a little time. And that is uh, in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And the words I picked up on was, uh, uh, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Ready to share. And that just rung a bell, and I had looked at it, and I said, this is where we need to be. So we need to turn now for the balance of our message to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. This page 967 in your pew Bible. And the reason I say that is I want you to look at the text, not at me necessarily. I work real hard to look good. You know, I actually shave and shower and comb my hair and brush my teeth, put on this nice polyester robe. But even as good as I look, I don't want you looking at me. I want you looking at the text because I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to be looking at you so much as much as the text. This is a marvelous little passage of scripture. In 2 Corinthians, you're aware of Paul's ministry to the Corinthian church in his second missionary journey, made his way over into Macedonia, which is the northern part of the country of Greece, and then worked his way down to the southern part. In the northern part, you had places like Thessal Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi. But then as you go south, you get to places like Athens and Greek and um, Corinth and Chincheria and, and towns like that. Well, Paul had made his way down and had a, a ministry there founding the church, planting the church there in Corinth. And then he moved on and his, went back to Antioch, took a, and that was on his second missionary journey. On his third missionary journey, he goes to Ephesus, spends a lot of time in Ephesus, about three years. And while he's in Ephesus, before he goes and retraces his steps all the way back through Macedonia and down to Achaia, and then finally on his way, not to Antioch this time, but he's on his way to Jerusalem. And he's on his way to Jerusalem for a couple of reasons. One is he wants to perform a vow. He wants to do a particular worship uh, before the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem. And so he's on his way. He's trying to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost of that particular Jewish year. And so he's on his way. But while he was on the early part of this particular third missionary journey, he was in the town of Ephesus for a good long time. And apparently when he was in Ephesus, he had some correspondence back and forth with the, with the uh, church at Corinth. Now, if you look at a map, you can see that Ephesus over on the far eastern side of the Mediterranean and Corinth there roughly in, in kind of the middle part. The, the way the, the continents come out and jag through there with the rugged coastline, it's really not that far of a, of a boat ride. You think of it as, you know, on the land, it, it's a long way, but you can look, it's just a straight route right across the uh, Mediterranean there, the Aegean Sea from Ephesus in Asia Minor over to Corinth in Achaia, the southern province of Greece. And it's speculated by some that he had correspondence, that he wrote letters and sent letters back and forth during this period of time and even might have come over to visit him once. That's not written anywhere in the book of Acts, but it fits because when he's coming to now this, anticipating this next visit, he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Well, all we know about is one time. So maybe he made a trip over back to Ephesus and then completed his journey. And then the, for the third time, he finally made it around. Well, that's his trip now. He's on his way on his third trip. And what he's doing in Macedonia is he has learned that these poor saints in Jerusalem, 
where he's headed. He's on his way to Jerusalem eventually. The poor saints in Jerusalem because of the persecution, because of an unusual famine in the land of Palestine and all of that, there, there is a, a um, need for the poor saints in Jerusalem, the believers in Jerusalem, who under a lot of persecution there in that, in, in that uh, city where the, ch- where the church started and, and moved forward in the New Testament era, this particular church has needs. The fellowship of the saints has needs. The people, the believers. And so Paul begins in Macedonia to take a collection for the poor saints, for their relief there in Jerusalem. And so as he begins to take this collection, he writes ahead and gets everybody ready for when he gets there to have the money collected and ready to go. And that's what he deals with here in these two chapters. I'm going to not read it all, but I'm going to skirt through these two chapters. And when I find a little good place to stop, I'm going to bounce out of here and say, pay attention to this. Because everything Paul admonished the men of the church and women of the church to do in his letter to Timothy, he gives an example of it here. So we're going to look at what my professor in college, Dr. William Bell, uh, called New Testament giving. Now, you're familiar with Old Testament giving. You need to study the tithes and the offerings and so forth. It'll give you an idea of how God took care of the poor and supported the ministry in the Old Covenant with the Levites and the temple and all the rest. Now, this gives us a hint of one aspect of our money being turned into treasures in heaven. This is how it's done on earth with respect to taking care of the needy saints. He's not dealing with supporting the ministry here. He's not talking about paying preacher salaries. He's talking about giving to the poor, which has the priority throughout the New Testament as to where our money needs to go. So he's writing to them and he said, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's where, where he is at this point or is soon to be there. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, every time I stop, there's a sermon there, and, uh, and, but I'm going to try not to preach it, but I will give you the thesis of it. Notice the contrast between their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. My goodness, these people must have something in their soul that really delights their soul besides their bank accounts because their joy is abundant, but their financial situation is extreme poverty. It's overflowed into a wealth of generosity on your part. This is what's happening here. Now, you're going to have an opportunity as he writes to those in the southern part of Greece, from the northern part of Greece. He says, we're going to be coming your way soon And you have an opportunity to now help those poor saints, not in northern Macedonia. You'd think you'd take an offering and go up to where those... No, the money's going to Jerusalem. So these people in Macedonia have their own problems, but it doesn't keep them from having joy in the Lord and being generous in their heart. In fact, it's a, it's an, a generosity that is exemplary for, for the, whole, the whole church. And here's how it says, they gave according to their means so I can testify and beyond their means of their own free will. They gave, they gave of their means, they gave beyond their means, they gave of their free will. That's a good sermon right there. 
That's got enough points in it to give us a good idea of how our hearts are to be tuned for generous New Testament spiritual giving. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In other words, they didn't want to miss out on the opportunity and the blessing of giving. Their hearts had finally been moved in that direction that we talked about last week. When the Lord has your heart, he has your treasure. And that had happened to them. And even though they were in extreme poverty, I think if it had been me, I would have said, you know, y'all are excused. I can't, I can't ask any money from you folks. Y'all are in extreme poverty. But they wanted the opportunity because they knew the richness of the spiritual blessing. And if I hurry, I can show you what that spiritual blessing is. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, it says, they gave themselves first to the Lord. And I'll stop right here. And if I don't go any further, that's what we need to know. It's giving yourself first to the Lord. When you have done what Paul calls for the church at Rome to do in chapter 12, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, when you have sacrificed and laid upon the altar your life. And when you finally come to the end of that life, you're like Paul, you're like a drink offering that's been poured out and you're now completely empty and devoid, but you have given all to the Lord as a act of worship, a spiritual sacrifice, Romans 12, one and two. And this is what these people have done. So that's why they have the joy. That's why they have this, because they're looking at this from an eternal perspective. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And then accordingly, we urge Titus. And by the way, Titus is the young man that is going before Paul. He's with Paul. He's going to go and met up with Paul in Macedonia. And he's going to go ahead and he's going to have, as mentioned here, another brother who's well known. And the two of them are going to be the couriers and the uh, stewards of this offering that's being received. Paul's not going to touch the money. In other places, he made sure they knew he wasn't in it for the money. And so he has others to take care of that. There's a stewardship there on the collection. Titus started this so that he should complete among you this act of grace. And then again, in a couple of verses, he calls it, yet you may excel in this act of grace. There is a reality to this that is part of giving. Here's the pattern as we've seen it in these four weeks of dealing with this subject. God is gracious and pours out an abundance upon us, salvation and all the other spiritual blessings and even financial blessings, all kinds of blessings. But then all that does is stir in our hearts to be like our heavenly father. And since our heavenly father has given all, we in turn have a spirit and an attitude of generosity. So it is an act of grace. Though but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in love, in our love for you, that you excel in this, once again, act of grace. And then he mentions it here in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I remember preaching this about 30 years ago on Sunday night in a little Baptist church and I saw a man over on the side over here and I watched his face and he, he, he just sort of flinched for a minute when I read that. 
that you know the grace of our Lord, how that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. I watched his face. He kind of flinched and it, it dawned on him. And then I watched him smile. And then I noticed within just a few seconds, tears were flowing down his cheeks. And when the service was over, he caught me in the back and said, said, I had never really thought of it that way, of how the Lord left the splendor of glory and everything he had and gave it all up and endured the most incredible humiliation in order that he might bring us to wealth, wealth untold, eternal wealth. Our, our salvation is really nothing less than that, that through his poverty, his humbling himself and becoming obedient, even the death of the cross, he gives us everything we have, everything we have in our salvation. Now, Paul gets picks up with it here and he talks about how they started this project about a year ago. He says in verse 11, so now finish it and do so, so that your readiness, and I want you to notice that term ready is going to appear here. It's going to appear at a couple of verses down and it's going to appear over in, in the next chapter. You remember our text in Timothy said, tell them to be ready, ready to give. Getting ready means you've got to put in some, some forethought. You've got to plan you have to have some kind of procedure in mind that makes sense that will get the job done. And so here he talks about now finishing it well, going ahead and completing the collection of this, this offering. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, you're not giving out of the poverty. You can't give out of nothing, but you can if you've prepared, if you're ready if you've been working at it, in this case, about a year and maybe more, they've planned your participation in this offering. You've planned your giving. And you not only planned it and you're prepared in the sense, but you're eager. You're, you're ready for the collection plate to come by because you've, you have given everything you need. And you'll talk more about the condition of the heart. Verse 14, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. You see the equity here in the household of faith? Right now, you have the joy of giving in order to help the poor saints. But one day, those poor saints may not be so poor or they may be sacrificial as well and they can help you. This mutual love for one another. And that's what he's going to call it here at the very end of the verse. He's going to call it, this is how we express our love of the brethren is by having this mutual giving and helping. But, it, but there's an equity that's there. Then he quotes a passage of scripture. He says, that is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left and whoever gathered little had no lack. Remember the background of that? That's the giving of the manna. When God gave the manna in Exodus, they went out to gather it and somebody gathered everything he possibly could, just piled it up. Well, he didn't need any more than that. He had just what he needed. And the person that, that had a small amount, that was all they needed. And so it's not absolute dollar amounts in giving. It is relative to need on your part and your capacity to give and on the, the need. The greater the need, the greater the generosity. And, and it, it works out in a tremendous balance. And it says then in verse 14, he thanks God again for Titus, 
uh, who's given a real honest accounting. There's a lot of good principal stuff here about handling money. We'll skip for just a minute. With him, we're sending the brother who is famous among you. So Titus is going to have a partner in that stewardship of collection. And he says, um, he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this. And here's this phrase again, this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of God himself and to show our goodwill. Notice the motives. This glorifies God. What is, what is our answer to our catechism question? To enjoy God and to glorify him. God is glorified in, in, our, in our giving and our generosity. We take this course so that no one should blame us about the generous gift that is being administered by us. That's, once again, Paul does not want any um, question about the financial integrity of this enterprise. And so as for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for the brothers, they're messengers of the churches for the glory of Christ. And in verse, th uh, the, the very last verse that's there, verse 24, so give proof before the churches of your love. That's how we prove our love is with this generosity. Then as he, moves into, as he moves into chapter 9 here, he's going to talk a little more directly and personally about the nature of this giving. He said, it's superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry of the saints, but he does it anyway. <laughs> it was superfluous for him to write to them, but it wasn't superfluous for him to write to us. So he writes to them, so knowing that we then will be able to learn the lessons that they have already learned. Uh, and to know about your readiness. You're ready now to give this offering. Of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. He's telling the people of Macedonia, the people in Achaia have been ready to participate in this offering, in, in this collection uh, for a year now. And so he's sending the brothers so that you may be ready as I said you would be. And then uh, moving down to about verse 5, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go out ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an ex exaction. Did you catch that? The readiness, the preparedness, working on it now for a year, having it planned and, and, and now being finished out, being completed. That's what he's admonishing Titus and, and the others to do is to go ahead and get this, this offering squared away so that it may be a willing gift, giving willingly and not an exaction. The worst thing in the world we can have in our, in our church is this notion in our heart that they have required it of me. They have somehow taken their pound of flesh. They put the guilt trip on me that I participate and I owe them something. You talk about an exaction. There was an exaction in the Old Testament. There was a tenth part of your increase. That took care of your profit and loss statement right there. But then there was also free will offerings of your wealth. That handled your balance sheet right there. And those were exactions. The people were heavily leaned upon to do it and required by law to give the tenth part in the tithe and some other particular offerings. Nothing like that in the New Testament. In the New Covenant with the New Spirit, 
and the new wine in the new wineskins. We have all things new and all things that are new are given to us to have a willing heart and not an extraction. The point is this, verse 6, that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully would also reap bountifully. I think that makes sense in and of itself, but if you want to expand on that, it's, it's a quotation from Proverbs 11, verse 29, uh, 24 and following, and it goes for several verses. And if you want to learn about how to handle money and what money's all about and what God expects us to do in our stewardship of our financial means, you need to read big chunks of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is filled with things. We're going to see one in just a minute, the one that we didn't read. It's filled with Proverbs that tell us about, about our money, how money is, is earned, how money is to be treated. Each one, each one must give, uh-oh, that sounds like a, a mandate. Each one must give as he has made up his mind. You must give, but you give according to what you've determined. This is, this is your own heart. This is your own treasure. This is your own life. This is part of laying hold to eternal life. You want eternal life, but you don't want to put your treasures in eternity? Then I'm not sure you have eternal life. This is, this is the, the mandate is that you give what you've made up in your mind, not reluctantly or under control or under compulsion. So willingly, not, and I like the old King James, not grudgingly nor of necessity. <laughs> That's, that, that always sort of kind of burned it on my soul when I was a young man, I remember, grudgingly. And uh, I came from a family, I'm going to blame it on my hereb, but we would pinch that penny, pinch that penny until Lincoln would squeal. We would just, you know, hold on to it. And that, was, that was our nature with everything. A stinginess that was just ingrained in our souls, and it it was it certainly had to do with even giving in church. And I remember, the grudgingly or of necessity is what is is the darkness of my heart that's got to be overcome in this matter. For God loves a cheerful giver. What's this cheer and joy and bounty and all of this this good, rich, positive stuff that's being talked about in this passage when they're talking about getting in our pocketbook and taking a big chunk of our money? It's because we're talking spiritual values. If it was just material values, we'd have a whole different perspective. If I was conducting a seminar on how to make and spend and hold and invest your money, uh, just from a purely materialistic financial standpoint, it'd be a whole different talk. But now we're in the house of the Lord. We're dealing with the Lord's money and we're dealing with stewardship. It makes all the difference in the world. As it is written, he has distributed freely, but he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Psalm 113, 9, Psalm 112, 9 and following. And then there's another uh, scripture about sowing and reaping. And we'll see that in our proverb. And in here, the, the, the following point should be our best of all. You will be enriched in every way for your generosity. It'll come back to you. Full, pressed down, running over, full measure. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God 
Listen to this language. It will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the need of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from the confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them. This whole enterprise of giving is going to create and fuel a worship service. Thanksgiving. A liturgy, a service. Verse 13, glorifying God. That's what true giving will do to you. It will cause you as you've never before to know and love and understand and trust your God. You want to love your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, strength, body, everything? Then get your treasure involved. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And you'll end up, when, it, when your heart gets right, you will end up in worship. Giving thanks to God for all that he's given. Pouring out, glorifying God. And then finally, there in that last verse, he says, While they long for you and pray for you. Here's prayer, here's intercession. This is a worship service. How do you have a with thanksgiving, glorifying God, interceding, praying? That's what this ends up being. To the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then finally, he erupts in his own theme of worship. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It is an inexpressible gift, but let's just see what it sort of spells out. Going back to Proverbs 3, the little passage that we uh, missed. As we close, let me read it for you. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Notice that's the twofold. The wealth is the money you have, the treasure you have, and the first fruits is your increase. One works to what you're receiving, and the other is what you already have. God works both poles of the picture. And notice this last verse, verse 10. Honor the Lord with you the wealth, the first fruits of your produce. Then will your barns be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with the wine. What is that talking about? If you read the Old Testament very much, you'll find over and over and over and over a pairing of two things. The grain, the bread, which we have here with the barns will be filled with plenty. That's the garnering and the storage of the grain out of which they make the bread, and your vats will be bursting with wine. What does bread and wine represent to us, if not Christ? Christ. 